Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Go in your Bibles. We're going to Acts chapter 12 this morning. We have been looking throughout this series divine rescue the battle belongs to the lord and in every one of these encounters it's the lord responding to the prayers of his people moses delivering the children out of egypt through the red sea in the wilderness moses these serpents take them from us here's a larger one look and live moses dies they go across the jordan river Joshua leads them into the promised land. The conquest begins, and they cry out to the Lord. They pray, and the Lord gives them the battle of Jericho. Move into the time of Judges. The people are crying out to the Lord. The angel shows up. Gideon, you're the mighty man. Too many people, too many people, 300. Now watch what I do, and I will deliver you. We've seen in the time of the prophets, we saw Elijah and the prophets of Baal on the hill outside of Mount Carmel. And the Lord was victorious and fire fell one prayer. Show them who you are, God. After all of that empty crying out to the Lord or crying out to Baal that those prophets did all morning, cutting themselves, hurting themselves, injuring themselves, On and on and on, they went reciting their mantras, and there was no one listening. No one responded. No one paid attention. Elijah, one prayer. Then we met Elisha, and there he is with his servant, and the servant wakes up, and, my master, we're surrounded. There's a massive army. Lord, open his eyes. Let him see there's more with us than there are with them. In all of these opportunities, we see the prayer. We we have seen God respond to the prayers of his people. And then last week, we looked at Hezekiah. And he simply took that, and he took that taunt. He took that threat. He took the challenge that came from Sennacherib, and he just placed it before the Lord and said, Lord, this Assyrian king is picking a fight with you. I've tried everything that I can think of doing and I have no ideas left. I have no resources left. I have no strength left. This is only going to be accomplished if you intervene. And the Lord responded so rapidly through Isaiah. You let him know I've got this. He's not going to set one foot in the city. They're not going to fire one arrow at the city. They're not going to have time to bring up a shield against anything happening, let alone the months and years it would take to build a siege mound and wait it out. It's not happening here. I'll put a ring in his nose. I'll put a hook in his jaw, and I'm going to take him back the way he came, and he'll die in his own land. And in one night, everything changed. One angel, 185,000. And one king woke up expecting it to be victory day. And it was his D-Day. And he went home, army wiped out. And the people of God, they realized, 
Wow. Our God saves. Now, I wish I could tell you that the people went on even in Hezekiah's day and they were faithful to the Lord and they loved the Lord and they served him, but they didn't. And generations would come, they would forget and they would do all the same things again. And then it would fall into the period of exile. And I'm not preaching through any of that because I've already preached Esther. You can find those series online. We went through Nehemiah, those series, all those messages are online. And we're moving through the 400 years of silence. And then Jesus came, and we've gone through the gospel of Luke. So I'm going over the gospels, and we're going all the way to the book of Acts that Jesus has now ascended, and the church is born, the Spirit comes, the church is born. And if you read through Acts, if you look through Scripture, you will be hard-pressed to ever find anything happening for eternal good that isn't God responding to the prayers of his people. He delights in hearing and answering the prayers of his people. And we find that happening here. We're about A.D. 44, so it's about 10 years after the whole crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension. About 10 years later, the church has been developing, forming, and we're going to answer three essential questions about authentic prayer as we talk about unceasing prayer. That comes right out of our text this morning. What is it to offer unceasing prayer to the Lord? We'll answer these three questions. First of all, why? Why does the church gather to pray? All right. Why does the church gather to pray? Well, first of all, we pray because we offer to the Lord adoration. All right, jot that down on your notes. They're on your sermon outline. You can download them online. You can put them on a device if you want to, or you can fill them out there. But I want you to have this, and don't trust your memory to remember it. Your memory isn't that good, all right? So get your pen out and take these notes and let this simmer in your heart. It will help. It will encourage your remembering, all right, by hearing it, by writing it, by taking it with you to meditate on it. We pray because of what we learn in the scriptures and how we're led by the Spirit of God. John Piper calls this a, a prayer time is a walkie-talkie to heaven. It's a walkie-talkie. The Lord Jesus gave, and we're going to look at that next week, even, even in our New City Catechism, the disciple for prayer, or the, the, the disciple's prayer, his pattern for prayer. It was never intended to be what some of you may have grown up in, recited from memory at certain occasions over and over and over as if that covered everything. Jesus said, pray. He didn't say pray this. He said, pray in a manner like this. And he just got done saying in Matthew 6, don't go through vain repetition. And then people, two verses later, pick it up and say it, say it. They have it memorized, and they go through it rote. They don't even have to think of it. Our Father who art in heaven, and they just blow through it. Now on to lunch. Jesus did not give it. He gave it as a pattern for prayer. And in that pattern, we see adoration, where we're saying, our Father in heaven, God, you're worthy. The Psalms and prayers in the Bible, like we even read this morning, and we prayed to the Lord, they provide the pattern that we desperately need. Begin here. Don't begin with, Lord, I need. Lord, help us. Help me. Let's grow. Let's progress in our prayers. Robert Murray McShane, he said it this way. He said, I feel 
It is far better to begin with God, to see his face first, to get my soul near him before it is near another. Loved ones, let me encourage you to begin your day in prayer. Don't begin your day in social media. Don't begin your day with picking up on news. Don't begin your day. This is not, you know, this is important. Early in the morning, I will seek you. Start your day here. And then we move to confession. That we need to view ourselves rightly, okay? So confession, not just adoration, but it'll come on the screen, confession. We need to view ourselves rightly. We're needy. He's worthy. We're needy. We're in constant, desperate need of mercy. We have been forgiven, and we need to be forgiven on a regular basis. Luther was the one that he said that Christians are the confessing ones. It wasn't just at the moment of our salvation, of our conversion. This is throughout our lives. We are the confessing ones. We confess rightly who Jesus is, and we confess our sins. And and another word for confession is to simply say the same about What does God say about Jesus? Let me say that. What does God say about my sin? Let me say this. What does God view about his church? Then let me confess. Let me say the same thing about it. H.B. Charles, he says it this way. He says, you cannot seek God's face and save your own face at the same time. You cannot seek God's face and save your own at the same time. We got to let that sink in a little bit, don't we? Some of us are intimidated by prayer because we're trying to save face more than we're trying to seek God's face. Thanksgiving is an important part of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. You are so good. If you never do another thing for me, do we really believe that? You're all I'll ever need. He's been so good to us. Gratitude is a right and righteous response to the Lord. We are proclaiming to him, Lord, thank you. Thank you. And then we move into supplication. An old word, it means petitions, requests. This is what we need. We saw it last week, Hezekiah's prayer. Please help, help please. Not very, not very grandiose, you know, help, help please. This is where we bring all the requests that we have to the Lord. Everything that is on our heart, we bring to the Lord. You can also use it in this way, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoration, look up. Confession, look within. Thanksgiving, look around. Supplication, look out. Right? And what this does is it, it tenderizes our hearts. It focuses our prayers to not get to me first. But begin with God and who he is. It's just seeking his face before we seek his hand. H.B. Charles, he says another helpful comment in his book on prayer. He says, prayer is one of the most difficult things to learn as a follower of Christ because it is one of the most important things to learn in your Christian life. Difficult because it's most important. So that's why we pray. The second question we want to answer is this, when? When does the church, 
When are we driven to prayer? When are we driven to prayer? James, we are introduced here in, in, in Acts chapter 12. You can see about that time in verse 1, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So let me say again, we're going through long sections of text. The main text of the sermon is not going to come up on the screen. I want you to have it in your Bibles, all right? There's Bibles under the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. It's our gift to you. But I want you to have your eyes on the text so you have the context. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands, Acts 12, 1, on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but you might want to circle that. You might want to highlight that. You might want to underline that. He was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. So when is the church driven to prayer? In times of temptation. In times of temptation, now, we're not going through all the chapters that led a, have led up to Acts chapter 12, not in this study, but the church faced external pressure and temptation they faced internal pressure and temptation. There was complaining. There was lying. There was all kinds of division that crept in. There was opportunities for people to be self-seeking or self-preserving. And it was met with prayer, repentance, and moving forward. And the church, Acts 12, is still on mission. Still on mission. The gospel is still going forward. We have been promised in Scripture when it comes to temptation that we have everything that we need to not yield to temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you. Well, pastor, does that include this struggle that I may say I was born with? Well, you have your thoughts, your perspective, your opinion, and then you have the Word of God, which, you're gonna, which one are you going to build your life on? No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. Here's a promise. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear up under it, endure it, remain steadfast, remain strong through that temptation. So sometimes people will say, they've heard it said that God will never give you more than you can handle. Anybody ever heard someone say that before? Well, good thing God will never give me more than I can handle. That's a lie. The guy who wrote this, his head was chopped off. It was more than he could handle. And he is in the presence of the Lord. Paul wrote specifically, there will never be a temptation that a child of God will ever say rightly, truthfully, honestly, it was more than I could handle. So God's to blame for my sin. 
No. He made a way of escape, but I wouldn't take it. I persisted in my sin, or you persisted in your sin, and then proceeded to say, but God, it was the woman you gave me, said Adam. And the woman said, but the serpent in the garden. That's an old line, and we're still using it. We'll also pray and be driven to prayer in not only times of temptation, but also in times of persecution. And this is what we see unfolding here in Acts 12. Herod's pursuit of Christianity originally was called the way. Okay, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So they were followers of the way, and Herod was persecuting. His persecution was driven by political, you know, political gains, and it was picking up. It was intensifying. The church faced persecution and abuse from the religious establishment of the Israelites, and now we're seeing the threat is coming from the Roman government. Okay, so there's a religious establishment that's going after the Christians, and there's a government that's coming after them. The Apostle James, who here it says, which James are we talking about? It's not the James that wrote the book that bears his name, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of John. We meet him, Luke 5, 8, 11. He's out fishing um, that night, and Jesus calls Peter, James, and John, leave your boats, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Just making sure you're still with me, and you are, all right? That's James, the brother of John. He's already been martyred. The execution has already taken place, and I want you to know exactly who this Herod is. This is Agrippa, all right? Agrippa I. He's part of a family that has a long history interacted with Jesus Messiah, He's the grandson of Herod the Great who was in power when Jesus was born. He's the one, Herod the Great, who issued the call for all the infant boys in and around Bethlehem under the age of two to be slaughtered. Okay? So anytime you affect children pre-born or after they're born, this is, the, this is the kind of leader that is. And they will all stand before and give account to the Lord for all of the crimes done against the least of these. This Herod Agrippa was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was in power during the ministry of Jesus. That Herod Antipas was the one who married his sister-in-law. Her name was Herodias. And John the Baptist said, you have done wrong. Your marriage is wrong, buddy. It's adultery. It's defiled. Well, Herodias didn't take too kindly to that. And we know how that ended up with John in prison and John beheaded. This Herod Agrippa I is the one who, we've already read it, killed the apostle James. Now he has Peter arrested here in Acts 12. And he is large and in charge when the chapter unfolds. But it's not going to end that way. He's the one who's laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. He is known for cruelty. That's, this whole family is known for cruelty. His son would be Herod Agrippa II, and later on in the book of Acts, we'll meet the apostle Paul will be on trial before him in Acts 25 and 26. So this family has a long interaction with God's chosen king, Jesus, the son of David. This whole family was known for cruelty, 
The execution of the apostle James here is summed up in one simple, succinct sentence. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Think about that. If you look at the martyrdom of Stephen, the, the, the deacon, I mean, there's a long account of him preaching and his message, and here we get to one of the apostles, and it's just, it's like just a, just like a blip in the text of Scripture. Dead. He put him to death. Josephus gives a record here that popularity, all right, so he's a historian about this time, popularity was the ruling passion of this Herod, Agrippa. Not naturally so cruel as some of the family. So everyone knew that Herod's family was cruel, but this Herod that we're reading about here in Acts 12, he was driven by popularity. That was more important. He was so passionate about what are people saying about me? What do people think about me? How am I doing in the polls? And when he put James to the death, he went up in the polls, so he said, go get another one. Get Peter. He's known for cruelty, that whole family, but this guy was more driven by his cruelty was an outworking of his insatiable craving of popularity. Sound like anything in our culture today? How am I in the polls today? Uh, John Calvin and his institutes, he, he said this, he, he quoted a historian, and he talked about the difference of having somebody who's a cruel, like the Herod family, or somebody who is cruel in a different way, and that is they have no standards and no laws. He says it this way, it is indeed a bad thing to live under a prince with whom nothing is lawful, but it is much worse to live under one with whom all things are lawful. You watched your nightly news lately? Where everything goes? Nothing new. Right now, persecution that's happening in India we're praying for them. Just found out recently, 7,000 Christian homes torched, burned, homeless because of Hindu nationalists trying to make India great again. Go back to pre-William Carey days. That leaves a lot of work and reading for you to do. I understand that. I can't handle all of that. But we're to pray for the persecuted church. The apostle Peter, now he's arrested. Herod is waiting out the Jewish observance of Passover. It's wrapping up, wraps up with seven days of unleavened bread. Peter is on the agenda. There he is. He's in prison. He's in maximum security. He's chained between two guards, right hand, left hand. He's under the watch that Herod is committed to, four squads of soldiers. He's in maximum security. The church will pray in times of persecution, but also the church will pray in times of desperation. Now the church is at the end of their rope. Undoubtedly, the church is still grieving the death of James, that the Lord did not intervene on that occasion. Where was God when James was beheaded? What happened? Where? You know what James would say? If he never did another thing for me, he's always been good to me. That's exactly the truth of Scripture. But the church, they're approaching Peter's imprisonment with a little more intensity. There's something changed. We're not told, and it's, it's, it's silent in Scripture. Did they gather for prayer meetings all night when James was imprisoned? I don't know. But they were now. 
they're desperate. They realize they're grieving. Their hearts are broken. Their beloved James is dead. Peter is next up. And if God doesn't step in, so an understand church, what they're doing is they're saying, we know our old testaments and we know that everything can change in one night. And we've read about kings in the old Testament that thought they were large and in charge and would not go in anywhere for a good couple decades. And everything changed for those kings in one night. And so Lord, we're seeking your face. They're praying. The church was preparing for the death of Peter. So Peter was kept in prison. So they go to that walkie-talkie. They dial up heaven. And they're praying. I love that. That's why I said you might want to underline that but. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him. They're praying for Peter was being made, this is work, to God, that's the directions of their, the direction of their prayer, by the church. This is against all odds. They're asking God to do something. And they were engaged in this. They didn't form a militia, head down to Her Herod's prison, let's break him out. They're praying, they're on their knees, they're fighting this battle on their knees. The word there for prayer is prosuke. It's earnest prayer. It's prayer without ceasing. What does the scriptures tell us about this? 2 Corinthians 1.11, that Paul here implored the church, be praying for your leaders. And he says, you also must help us by prayer. Us? Help you, Paul? So that many will give thanks on our behalf of the blessing granted through prayers of many, through the prayers of many. This is a partnership. You pray for us, that the Lord will work in the hearts of unbelieving people. They will come to faith. And we told them, and you prayed for us, we're in this together. We'll share in the, in the spoils in heaven. First Thessalonians 1, 2, Paul here is saying that the leaders are praying for the members of the churches. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, praying for you. Ephesians 6, 18, prayer is war, and it's how we win every battle. It's where we win or lose the battle. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints that you really love. Is that what it says? No. All of them, even the stubborn ones. Pray for all the saints. Maybe those stubborn ones are in your family, right? Pray for all the saints. Philippians 4, 6, we just studied this. Here's the antidote to anxiety. Okay, some of you view anxiety and you maybe struggle with anxiety and you think that, man, this is something that if I could just get rid of, man, life would be great. What if that anxiety drives you to prayer and what was meant for evil, God turns and uses for good? If every time you are dealing with those anxious thoughts, you say, oh Lord, I have anxious thoughts again and I need your help. And I'm praying, adoration, Lord, you're good. And if every time you deal with anxiety, it drives you to prayer, who loses on that? Not you, the enemy. So Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but, there's that beautiful word again, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there I hear Harrison Banda's voice in my head with thanksgiving in our hearts. Right there it is, right out of Scripture. 
They prayed earnest prayer for him. They're praying for Peter. They're asking, Lord, spare his life. How often are we approaching prayer like this? They were believing in the power of God. They were praying without ceasing. That's our third distinctive. It's vital to our church's health and future. We cannot accomplish anything except by prayer, loved ones. Not by working harder, trying harder, doing more. We pray and then outworking his obedience. And who's praying here? But it's the ecclesia. It's the called out ones. It's the church that not all of them were gathered, but many of them were gathered there. And they were the ones called out of the world and they were named by Christ and they are coming together asking the Lord for divine intervention. They knew how God had worked in the past. And so now they're saying, we need you to work again. And we remember the promise of Jesus. And we remember that Jesus taught in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Read this last phrase with me from Jesus. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What can we accomplish without the Lord doing that work in us? Do you know that's what actually makes our work good works? It's he's doing that through us. It's not us trying harder. It's him working that out in us. What can we do without him? Nothing. That's why prayer time is so valuable. Before each service, there are, there are many who gather and we pray in this back room at 940. That's why we gather in small groups. That's why we pray together. We give important, critical times in our lives together that we pray. We intercede with one another. That's why we pray the Psalms when we gather with men as we gather on the third Saturday of the month and why our women will be doing that beginning in November and gather. And part of the time of gathering is take a Psalm and pray that Psalm back to the Lord. Why? Because Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then, look at the invitation here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's available. And Jesus has thrown the doors open to his children. He says, come on. I opened the way. Go with me. There's plenty of mercy, plenty of grace that you and I can find in a time of need, but it's all because of Jesus and only because of him. So then the third question we have to answer this morning is what then happens when the church prays? What happens when the church prays? What's the result? What can we trust the Lord for when the church gathers and prays? So we look at this account in Acts chapter 12 and we consider this account. And then we, we look with investigation, well, what did God do? What changed? Everything changed. First of all, we find great consolation. We can trust the Lord for this. A great consolation. So much comfort. Indescribable peace. In verse 6, Now when Herod was about to bring him, the apostle Peter, out, on that very night, Peter was pacing back and forth between two soldiers, fretting, tossing and turning. No, that's not what it says. What, is it? what was Peter doing? Yeah, he was snoring. I know he was. Fishermen like that guy, for sure he had sleep apnea. He's snoring. 
All right? He's sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before, and, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. He is safe in the arms of Jesus. He didn't forget what Jesus promised him. When you read in John, it starts off with, what's going to happen? Why are we talking about this? But Peter, he converted what Jesus told him into a promise. John 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, the Lord Jesus says to Peter, I say to you, when you, Peter, were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are, what's the word? Old. You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John, writing this, explains. He gives the note in his gospel, verse 19. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Well, here we fast forward. A decade later, Peter's not an old man yet. He knows what's coming the next morning. He's asleep. Like, I'm not an old man yet. I don't know how God's going to do it, but whatever. I'm, he's sleeping. He has great comfort, great consolation. Well, that's what comes through prayer. Lord, my times are in your hands, the psalmist said. So whatever you choose to do with me, I'm good. Do you have that kind of confidence? Whatever people think of me, if you say rightly that I'm pleasing to you, it doesn't matter what people think of me. My confidence, my approval doesn't come from me or people. It comes from you. So I'm good with what you say. Then we see not only great consolation, but divine intervention. He's sleeping, and then everything changes. Here's an angel back. Again, not one of them fat little cherubs half-clothed with a little, you know, little bow arrow, bow and arrow and wings, and no, 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 no. Here an angel shows up, verse 7, and behold, don't miss this. Check this out. Fix your eyes on this. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. This is, this is comical here. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. If you were an investigator, everything you read about this account sounds like a true report of account. There's some really minute, unimportant things that happened here, but that's true of testimony. That's what investigators look for. What just sounds mundane, normal, and you would never include unless it actually happened? People who lie make up fanciful stuff. This is just the truth, and it's just straightforward and basic. And so Peter gives the account. The angel met him in the cell, brought the presence of the Lord, the light of God's glory. 
angel of the Lord stands next to him. A light fills the cell. He strikes Peter on the side. I don't know how he did that. Hey, Peter, get up. Hurry up. Get up quickly. Peter, huh? Chains fell off. Hey, Peter, uh, go ahead and get dressed, please. Go ahead. No, really, put your clothes on. Oh, Peter, yeah, get your sandals on. Does this sound like a dream when you're trying to run and you can't run and you might have your track shoes on and you're just stuck in the mire and you're trying to get away, you're trying to help. And here Peter is, and the angel's like, no, go ahead and put your sandals on. Is that something you're doing on a prison break? Oh, excuse me, let me put my sandals on. You ever tried to help your own feet or somebody else's feet with sandals? That's not a fast process. You know, a little tighter. Yeah, one more, one more. Okay, good. Yeah, that's good. Wrap it around over the foot. Good. Yeah, that's tight. That feels good. Get your sandals on. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. Sandals, more correctly. And there's the two guys in the cell. What, what's happening with them? They're just wiped out. There's Peter, and he's just tying, putting his sandals on. Hey, go ahead and wrap your cloak around you. Okay, going to need that. Let's not waste that, you know. Puts his cloak around. All right, let's follow me. Let's go. He went out and followed him. Peter, the whole time, is wondering, what's really going on here? Is this a dream? They go out past the first guard, out past the second guard. They get to the big iron gate. Now, this is going to be a problem. It just opens up. Whoa. He walks out, and then the account, and they walk down one street, and the angel's gone. The angel got him a street away from the prison. Now you don't need me anymore. The angel of God did everything supernatural. Peter had to do everything that was basic and just natural. Just like when Jesus showed up at Lazarus' tomb, and then Lazarus comes out, he says, can you help him get those clothes off? You can do that. Go investigate this situation up close and personal. I'm not wasting a miracle on that. So Peter, one street over, and he's standing there like, whoa. You know, maybe there's a rooster crowing again. Doesn't say it in the text. He's like, oh, man, there's the rooster again. But this time's different. The Lord still loves me. Feed his sheep. I'm going to feed his sheep. Where would his feet, you know, feet be sheep? Where would his sheep be right now? I know where they'll be. They're over at a house. They're praying. And this is where we see results that exceed all expectation. This is what happens when we pray. Peter shows up at the prayer meeting. Hey, you got, got room for one more in there? And he's missing from Herod's maximum security prison. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Verse 13, and he knocked at the door of the gateway. The servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate. Here's more mundane, just silly things happening. But ran in and reported that, hey, Peter was standing at the gate. Peter's at the gate. They said to her, oh, praise the Lord. That's what we were praying for. Let's go welcome Peter. No, that's not what they said. They said to her, verse 15, you are out of your mind. 
There go the kids in the youth group again. Shh, quiet down. The important people are praying over here. This is serious. These kids, they're just not serious enough. But she kept on insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. He's already dead. It's his ghost. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand, to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James, that's a half-brother of Jesus, not James, it's already dead, James, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should receive Peter's sentence, that they should be put to death. Then he went on vacation down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. These are results that are beyond all of their expectation. They could not conceive of this. They didn't know what God would do, but they did know from their Bibles what God could do. So Peter goes, he finds him at the church. He's knocking on the door. Rhoda comes. You know, that's John Mark. John Mark, this is giving a little a tip to what's coming in Acts. He's the one that's going to bail on Paul and Barnabas in mission work. But he's also the John Mark that was restored, that later in life, Paul said, send John Mark to me, for he's useful to me. It's also Matthew Mark. A gospel bears his name that he received through the apostle Peter. He was the one writing. And so this is giving a, a huge tip in this boy's upbringing that his mom was a prayer warrior, that this guy, he did well for a while like Hezekiah, Hezekiah did. He stumbled for a while, and the Lord didn't throw him away. He brought him back, and he used him greatly. That's a hilarious scene, Peter knocking on the door. Rhoda, shh, calm down. Peter has to quiet them down, like calm down. Shh, come on, don't make a big stir here. He gives them a report, they praise the Lord, and he goes on to somewhere else. Just plain and simple and straightforward, but not so down in the prison. Now those guys wake up, you know, whatever their names are, and they wake up I'm like, hey, what morning, hey, how you doing? Man, you fell asleep, so did you. Um, chain, empty, chain, empty. Uh, where's the guy? Where's Peter? I don't know. They walk forward to the cell. Hey, uh, y'all know where Peter is? We thought he was locked up with you. Uh, no. Well, let's talk to the other guys out a little further. Seen anything? No. But I thought it was strange that the prison gate was swinging wide open when I showed up this morning. Well, this is not good. And the word comes to Herod. And immediately, he's upset. He's angry. Who lost the prisoner? I had him on full watch of everything, and you lost him. And Herod says, then you die in his place. That's the Herod family. It's great while it's great working for him. As soon as he turns on you, you're done. Enemies of God 
we pray this to receive just retribution. We can trust the Lord for this. Herod was brought all the way down to the grave in a horrible fashion. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So now it's bringing up something that was going on between these other people. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, let me just make a note here, you have an appointed day and so do I. There's no mistake in God's sovereignty here that this was the day that Herod's life was coming to an end. But he didn't know it. He's the king after all. He's on vacation. He's in his palace down in Caesarea. He put on his royal robes. That's the last thing that he would do there. Put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. He gave a speech. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So they just kept shouting that, the voice of a God and not of a man. This is, this is the crowd. They're worked up. They're in a frenzy. They, they want to flatter him. They want to impress him. They want him to, we need your money. We need your resources or we're going to die. So we're looking to you. We trust in you. The voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 23, immediately. An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Okay? This man and his family had so much interaction with God who became flesh. His name is Jesus. And he never bowed his knee. He never bowed his life to Jesus. And in that moment, the Lord said, that's it. I can't handle any more of him on earth. And sent one angel again. Here's the angel back. One angel And an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It can also be linked with a massive digestive system complete failure. A horrifically painful way to die. And in that moment, the Lord said, that's it. No more. Loved ones, rebellion against the God of heaven will not be tolerated forever. Last week, we looked at Sennacherib sending his messengers and they mocked Judah and they mocked Yahweh. That didn't end well for them. Sadly, the people of God in that passage, in that day, Old Testament, they would become like the pagan king in the years to follow. Isaiah 37 and verse 17. This is the... This is the prayer that we studied last week, and I found that it's interesting. It, it, this account, the account we studied last week three times in Scripture, it's found in the passage we studied, 2 Kings 18 and 19. It's found in 2 Chronicles uh, 32 in, the, in that area, and also in Isaiah 37. And here's the prayer of Hezekiah. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherim, which he has sent to, and this is the point here, mock the living God. That's what Herod was doing. 2 Chronicles 36, a few chapters later, listen to what the people of God did in Jerusalem and Judah. But they, verse 16, kept mocking the messengers of God. 
despising the people of God, despising the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That's the people of God. They were picking up Sennacherib's mocking cry and they were saying it when the prophets were coming to say, repent, your thinking is wrong, your lives are wrong. And they said, your thinking is wrong, your lives are wrong. And they mocked them and mocked them and the Lord said, that's it. And that led to the fall of the southern kingdom and they were put into exile. And this is what Paul writes in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not what? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Karma is not a thing that exists. It's a belief that is a f- just a facade. This is the law of the harvest. Whatever you and I put in the ground, you reap later than you sow. You reap more than you sow. You reap according to what you sow. That's the law of the harvest. Don't be mocked. So here's the account here with Herod, and we learned something from this. And this is true for everyone. Herod had options. He had an option for judgment, and he had an option for mercy. Herod refused to bow his knee, refused to bow his life to the Lord Jesus, but instead he just said, I'm out of here. He could have found Peter and said, you know what? I know enough to know I should be asking you some questions. But he didn't. So he just heads down to Caesarea, and there he is like a political figure, and he's just drinking in the flattery of the crowds, the crowds. And how that feels so good for the moment. You're the man. You're a matter of fact, you're you're not even a man. You're a god. You're incredible. And just soaking it in. And it happens on a a lot of playing fields too. I'm the man. Happens in a a lot of powerful positions. I'm the man. And on an appointed day, you won't be the man or the woman. Somebody else will have that position. Are you ready for that day? He's all dressed up. These this the the church or the the history records that this this garment you could hardly even look at it. It was reflecting the sunlight. It was just like blazing, brilliant, like a chandelier on a platform. This guy, you couldn't hardly look at him, but they need his help. They're not looking to the God of heaven over him. They're looking to him. And that was his final day of glory. His opportunity for repentance and faith ended. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans 12, 19 says this, Paul writing to Christians, Beloved, never, never, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The church didn't form a posse. They didn't form a political, let's revolutionize our government in Rome and wherever they were, Jerusalem. They prayed. Leave the vengeance to the Lord and he will repay justly, righteously. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. It came for Herod, and it's coming for you, and it's coming for me. Are you ready for that day? Because there is another option, and the option is mercy. And this is what Peter received from the Lord. This is what Peter received. He experienced the abundant mercy and grace of Christ, that he was forgiven, he was reinstated, and there was ministry for him so that Peter would preach earlier in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven, given among men, 
by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4.12. That's his message. That's his sermon. That's what he came to proclaim. And that was early on in his ministry. Then he was arrested. He was supposed to die. All that he went through. But then we fast forward to later in life and listen to what he's able to write to younger people. Look, look at what he's able to write. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. You think he was a firsthand witness of that? Let me tell you God opposes the proud. He just didn't oppose Herod. He opposed me too. And I had to lay my pride down before him, but gives grace to the humble. I was the one telling him, let's don't talk about the crucifixion anymore. Let's skip the cross. Get thee behind me, Satan, Jesus said to Peter. He opposes the proud, but listen to me, he gives grace to the humble. So where are you today, proud or humble? This is what Peter is saying. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all, here we are back to anxiety again, put it all on him. Why? Aren't you thankful he says that? Here he doesn't choose to say because he's sovereign and he strikes down kings and he strikes down nations. No, he says he cares for you. Isn't that what you need when you're struggling with doubt and worry, and rejection, and grief is he cares for you. And he cared for me, and he cared for James when he was beheaded, and he cared for me when I was in prison and didn't know what was going to happen. He cared for me when I was always mouthing off. He cared for me when I did what I shouldn't have done in the presence of the Gentiles when the Jewish people showed up and Paul rebuked me to my face. Oh, listen to me. Trust me on this. I'm an eyewitness. Jesus cares for you. So bring it all to him and give it to him. Well, then what happened out of all of this? Letter E. We can trust the Lord for this. Christ's church to move forward in expansion. Just straightforward and simply, verse 24 says, but Herod died miserably, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The work of God, it went forward. What the enemy meant for evil, God turned it around for good. What Herod intended for evil, God turned around for good, just like he did Joseph's brothers. Herod died, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So what the psalmist said in Psalm 146, verse 3, hey, people of Tyre and Sidon, hey, people of Jerusalem, hey, people in and around Richmond or wherever you're watching from online today, people all across the planet, take this to heart. Put not your trust in that next presidential candidate. Well, if we could just have... Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. You hear that contrasted with Acts 4.12? When his breath departs, every king, every mayor, every senator, even senators that lived out a whole career promoting abortion, when their breath departs them, they don't take with them the millions that they are now worth. 
It all stays for somebody else. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans are done. They perish. But it's not so for those who trust in the Lord. Life that never ends. The spread of the gospel from that day, it was globalized. It was moving out. Everyone heard the account of, did you hear what God did? They were praying, and Herod was the king, and he died, and I don't even want to talk about it, but he died. And everywhere they went, they were preaching the name of Jesus. Every believer. And God builds his church. So let me ask you the question. Are you living life like Herod this morning? Oh, on my terms. One day I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that. Or have you bowed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you have, what's that next step in your life to grow in prayer? To grow in a life of prayer and a discipline of prayer. Let's do that together in small groups. Let's do that whenever we're together. Families, let's seek the Lord, his face. And he's waiting on you today. Will you stand with me? Oh God, thank you for your word and the power of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your power displayed in this passage. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we need you. And we, in our own families, in our own hearts, individually, in our families, in our church, our missionary partners, Lord, we have needs and we bring them to you. And we praise you for you are good. We confess that we do not always seek you as we should. But we are thankful that you're merciful and gracious and we bring then all of our requests, all of our petitions to you, Lord, knowing that you hear, knowing that you see, knowing that you will answer prayers, that you will not cast off the humble, but that you will exalt the humble and you will put down those who are filled with pride. So Father, may we do what your spirit is leading us to do right here, right now, today, and live growing in that gospel grace for the rest of our days. In Jesus' good and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.